Do you live in fear of a complaint? Do you dread making a mistake or getting something wrong? No one goes to work expecting to fail and no one ever likes to be wrong or receive a complaint. But making mistakes is normal. After all, no one has a 100% success rate and receiving complaints from patients and clients could be seen to be an occupational hazard. We know this. So why do we find it so hard to cope when it happens? And it will. That's why we've put together a series of You Are Not A Frog podcasts on complaints and how to survive them. Going through a complaint or investigation is one of the most stressful things that can happen in your career. And I've seen firsthand the anxiety and emotional turmoil it can cause. And I know what it's like to berate myself when I inevitably fail. But it's because we care that we find this aspect of our professional practice so difficult. But what if there's a better way of handling things? What if we could learn to view the whole complaints process as just another part of our professional practice and learn the skills we need to manage ourselves, our colleagues and our patients in an empathetic and compassionate way throughout? In this fourth episode in the Complaints and How to Survive Them series, I'm chatting with Professor Susan Fairley, a specialist in organisational development and an executive coach with a background in nursing, and Dr Jane Sturgis, who is a consultant anaesthetist and is a specialist in risk and communication. We're talking about how to create a workplace where it's okay to fail. We chat about how incivility at work can cause your performance to plummet even if you're just an observer. We talk about how you can create a culture where you can admit your near misses or your near hits and how to have those crucial conversations that can feel so uncomfortable at the time. So listen, if you want to work out how to challenge, even if it's your boss, find out how good leaders can encourage a culture of learning from mistakes and find out how you can approach speaking up and discussing issues in exactly the same way as breaking bad news. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, life hacks for doctors and other busy professionals who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr Rachel Morris. I'm a GP turned coach, speaker and specialist in teaching resilience. And I'm interested in how we can wake up and be excited about going to work no matter what. I've had 20 years of experience working in the NHS and I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed, worried about making a mistake and one crisis away from not coping. Even before the coronavirus crisis, we were facing unprecedented levels of burnout. We have been described as frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, working harder and longer and the heat has been turned up so slowly that we hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm and have got used to the low-grade feelings of stress and exhaustion. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two options, stay in the pan and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog and that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your destiny and to craft your work and life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances. And if you're happier at work, you will simply do a better job. In this podcast, I'll be inviting you inside the minds of friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control and thrive, not just survive, in our work and our lives and love what we do again.
Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. It's really brilliant to have with me on the podcast today, Susan Fairley, who is a visiting professor at Worcester University. Now, Susan's got a background in nursing and she's a specialist in QI and organisational development. She's also an executive coach. She's currently working with the Time for Care team and the Infection Prevention and Control Safety and Support Unit. And she's also working with the Behavioural Insights Unit around courageous conversations, particularly in the time of COVID. So welcome, Susan. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. And it's brilliant to have also with me Dr. Jane Sturgis. Now, Jane is a consultant anaesthetist, and she's currently the Learning from Death's Lead at the hospital in which she works. She's also an Associate Dean at Health Education England. She's written many books about medico-legal issues, and she does lots of educating for medical protection around risk and communication. And she's also running a lot of sessions about difficult conversations. And so we've got two experts in difficult conversations here, which I think is really important. It's probably one of the things that we need to talk about today, because today what we're talking about is workplace and developing a workplace where it's okay to fail. In the other episodes in this series on surviving complaints, we've been very much talking about the individual. What should the individual do? How should the individual cope and respond? But what I'd like to talk about is how the workplace can interact with the individual, how it can cause complaints or or how it can help prevent mistakes. And so, Susan, what do you think the interplay is between the workplace and the individual? Is it mostly the individual with a bit of workplace or is it sort of 50-50? What would you say? I think certainly most organizations would aspire to be a learning organization. And I think as a learning organization, failing fast and failing early can be beneficial as long as we learn from those mistakes. But there's a huge amount of human factors at play. And I think if we don't stop and and reflect on what was my contribution to something going wrong, how has the system either supported or enabled or created some uh, perpetuating mistake, you know, make mistakes to be perpetuated, then I think that we're going to run us run into deep water. That for me is the thing. It's around what is the system that is supporting me to do the right thing? What is the system that's creating a culture where it's actually, I can't not do the right thing, if that makes sense. So it does touch a lot on yeah, um, how am I showing up at work today? How am I making it okay for people to check and challenge me if I'm about to make some rogue decision? And you know, there's lots of talk at the moment around patient safety and human factors and civility and compassion. And actually, it's all of that stuff. It's all welded together. Yeah, so there's two things, really. There's the whole prevention thing and that you really need a, a system that's going to actually make it really hard to make a mistake. But then you also need a system in which you can fail fast and you can speak up. Yeah, absolutely. 
It's really interesting, actually. There's a study, Hector Perez did a really interesting study in primary care in, in the States, actually, inner city practices in 2017. And what he was looking at was he was looking at how calm or chaotic was your workplace and what sort of effect did that have on you and your ability to perform well as an individual? And when he sort of extrapolated the data and he looked at it, he was finding that chaotic workplaces had far higher error rates, far higher levels of burnout, and far higher levels of staff turnover. And there have been other studies. So people like Pangiotti, again, this one's a secondary care study. So Pangiotti was looking at interventions to try and enhance well-being within the staff. And what they found was that interventions that focused merely on the individual gave some benefit, but that benefit could be significantly boosted if you had organisational level interventions. So starting to look at the systems, the policies, the practices, as well as just the people. So I think there is a need for the individuals to think about how how they are when they turn up to work. But I think unless we start to, and the evidence is out there that supports us, encourage our organisations and our workplaces to put in efforts to make it easy to do the right thing and hard to do the wrong thing, then then we're never really going to make the quality improvements in, in patient safety and the reduction in areas that we're all desperate to see. I think that's that's spot on, Jane. I was just reminded of, you know, when the ATM machines were first introduced and people used to put their card in and get the cash out and, and leave their card behind. And so those forcing functions, that, as we call them, have changed the way we do things now so that you can't get your cash until you've re- removed your card. And I think it's just learning from those sorts of other industries. What 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 can we glean that's that sort of a forcing function to, to make it easier to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing? I think you're spot on there. And I think there needs, from an organisational level, there needs to be an expectation of of making it easier and of, of making communication easier easier and more respectful so you know there was the lighter study that came out the crew study which is civility respect and engagement in the workplace and that again showed that if you put in sustained organization level improvements you can enhance the resilience the staffing levels and the safety of patients so it's not just about making individuals feel better it's actually about improving the standards of care and the quality of care that we deliver for our patients And of course, you know, the workplaces where people stay, people are loyal, people want to work and the places where people leave and that high staff turnover, the use of locums, it all buys in, doesn't it, to to increased error rate, uh, fatigue, burnout, not wanting to work. So if you can maintain and sustain your staff, you're going to maintain and sustain your levels of safety and quality. Yeah, and that's good for everyone, isn't it? Because it actually saves you money because you've not got the churn and it yep. makes it happier to work, place to work and then you're going to be more productive. I wonder whether people had heard about or are aware of the work of civility and incivility saving lives, Chris Turner's work and Christine Porath. There's lots of you know evidence now emerging around you know how we speak to each other. It isn't just what we say, it's how it's said. And we know that that sort of the frown on the wrong person's brow can close someone's thinking down. And you think, you know, if I'm going to say something and I'm going to get shot down, 
I might not say something again. And it might be at the time when I absolutely do need to say something, but I'm a bit fearful of being, you know, humiliated or or made to look stupid. And and particularly if that person is really senior, you know, that that frown on that person's brow can really have detrimental impact. But when I'm doing training with sort of a lot of the junior doctors and, and senior consultants, I say to them, how how easy do you make it for people to sort of challenge you or to speak up? Do you actually invite them in to say, if you think I'm about to make a rogue decision, I expect you to speak up and tell me what might be my blind spots? Because if we don't give permission as senior leaders in an organisation more junior staff and the junior doctors say to me, I need a reference, Susan. You think I'm really going to challenge the consultant when they don't wash their hands between patients? Of course I'm not, because I'm going to get shot down. So I think there's quite a lot we know around bullying, harassment, which is the one end, but there's this more subtle stuff, you know, around that frown, that tut that, you know, oh, here they go again type thing. It can really have such a detrimental impact. I think going back to the Civility Saves Lives campaigns, one of the other things that they're really, really keen to highlight is that it's not just the recipient of the incivility that suffers or or their behavior that is affected. So, you know, their big poster campaign says that 20% of witnesses suffer a decrease in their performance and then subsequently 50% are less willing, willing to help others. So when something happens later in that day, they're less willing to offer things. And of course, you know, the patients, because it, for me, it is all about the patients with staff a very, very, very close second. But, you know, the service users become very, very unenthusiastic about attending, attending an organization where they can feel or, or be aware that there's an incivil attitude. So it, it affects absolutely everything. And, and going back to your point as well, Tate Shanafeld, you know, has said back in, just last year, 2020, you've got to have good leaders to improve teams. I think... You know, leadership is a hundred percent key here because no, no matter how much you say to people, civility saves lives. And if you're, uh, say, in an A and E department and you're working on one patient here, and then you're hearing someone having a bit of an argument or being a bit rude there, your your performance, your concentration will go down. And that, you know, is based in neuroscience, isn't it? Your amygdala, your threat detection system's going. Oh, what's going on? What's going on? Do I do I need to be alert? And then you're in your sympathetic zone, and you're not you're not really paying good attention. But I think it's really hard because it's one thing saying we need good leaders and then no one ever sets out not to be a good leader. And then you put them in an environment where it's not. I mean, I guess we've all worked in places where everyone said, yes, of course, you can speak up. We're open here. But actually, you know that you can't. And I remember being a junior doctor, something happened. I was actively encouraged not to speak up because that would be bad for the hospital. And we can all think of times like that, but it is it is so hard to challenge. So how, as a leader, can you make it okay to challenge? Because I think when you're a leader, you don't, you don't feel the hierarchy, do you? You, you think you're being all friendly and then, that everyone can say anything to you. I had a really lovely example for, from a friend of mine who's an A&E consultant, and she said, whenever the the, the juniors come in and they call her Dr. So-and-so. She says, oh, please don't call me Dr. So-and-so. Call me by my first name because that makes it easier if you ever need to challenge me about something. That's great, yeah. isn't it? I think that's spot on. I think that's first name, reduce the hierarchy. I think, you know, you've probably heard of Martin Bromley and the work he's been doing around clinical human factors. And, you know, the, the pilots in, in the airline industry, they actually 
ask each other, please, please speak up if you think I'm about to make some some rogue decision. And I think we need to learn from that. So in terms of the senior leaders, you know, really helping make it clear, you know, we all have blind spots. Will you please be my ally and help me find mine or spot mine? Because, you know, I need you to keep us all safe. I can't necessarily know what I what I might be about to do might be wrong. Um, yes, I might be more senior. Yes, I might have to, to sort of carry the can on something. But if you think I'm about to make a rogue decision, I really, really implore you, um, speak up. Or what do you need me to do more of or less of to help you speak up? And I think it's that sort of language, bringing it into sort of your you know daily conversations. Mm. Is, is that what you did, Jane? You know, with, with your juniors, how did you get them to sp- speak up? Um so it's interesting. So I was asking my my learning from deaths team and I was asking my HEE team, what what is it that makes us work in a way where everybody is able to say stuff? And they said, it's the fact that you listen, that you really, really listen. You don't just listen to the words, you listen to the nonverbals. And then you act on what you've heard rather than what you've decided we've said. Um, So really listening and being interested. So especially when that opinion is other than yours or when the idea is other than yours. So keeping that open mind. And the minute you start to listen and then act on it and then allow people to be involved in the decision making, then they start to trust you. And then once they start to trust you, then they feel that they can speak up without consequence. So that said, my teams have said, yes, you do hold us to account. So I think there's something about a need for support and tension. So there's an educational model about if you want growth in an individual. So it was Dalos back, God, I think in the 80s, I can't remember. But he talks about a support and tension model. So if you want things to improve or to get better, you can't just be lovely all of the time. And sometimes we see that, don't we, at work, especially in those organizations where where there is a lack of trust or a lack of psychosocial safety climate, where people are superficially nice so in the public spaces oh yes here here i completely agree with that but when you get to the water cooler in the old days when we could all talk to each other but when you're having the the private conversations you start to get the gossip you start to get the depersonalization the cynicism so there's something about having genuine conversations and the only way to do that is if you know that if you you can have an alternative opinion but if there's an expectation of you you will be expected to meet it. And if you don't meet it, there will be a question, why haven't you met it? So really nice. But actually, when you've said you're going to do something, you kind of have to do it. I think that's really fascinating. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Nancy Klein. I don't know whether you've come across her. And you know, she's written several books about thinking. But she says, basically, to your point around listening, listen with fascination. Mm. Don't, don't listen to respond uh, because you know, I'm, I'm timing my answer ready, and 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 to your point around, I think you know, courageous conversations or a compassionate culture, it isn't just the soft and fluffy stuff. And as you say, being it's actually what, what Martin Luther King would have said, you know, a, a tough mind and a tender heart. You know, you've you've got to be able to have those difficult conversations sometimes. Maybe somebody isn't in the right job for them. And maybe the kindest thing to do would be to have that conversation about how might I help you 
grow into a role that's, that's you know more appropriate for you but i think it's that bit about complexity theory again you know that our, our ability to balance agency and communion and i yeah. think your your point about being the kindest thing to do is really well made because i think many many people conflate kindness and niceness mm. Um, mm. and they're not the same so sometimes to do the kind thing feels feels hard and yeah. feels difficult but as long as you know what your intention is and what your purpose is with something and and maybe when we start conversations we don't know what our intention or our purpose is with with it maybe we've got a hidden agenda so i think you know whenever you give feedback or whenever you have a really important conversation it's it's so important not to ambush people <laughs> it's so important to give them the right to reply and it's so important to respect their opinion. You might completely disagree with it, and that's okay. But it's just as valid as you as your opinion. Uh, uh. I think as a leader, one of the big challenges is hearing this stuff and not getting defensive. And, and that's what happens automatically. Someone speaks up, you take it personally as a personal criticism, and immediately you go into defense mode, no matter how much you try and do your, oh, tell me more, you're through gritted teeth, I don't really want to hear this, and this is really oh. uncomfortable. So how, I'm interested, first of all, how as a leader can you not be defensive, and how as a speaker-upper can you do it in a way that isn't going to put people on, on the defensive? So my sense there is that as leaders, we, we, we've got the, speak, the Freedom to Speak Up campaign, which everyone is sort of fairly familiar with, but I think unless we have the listen up campaign alongside it, where actually as a leader, I am really trying to listen up and what you have to say might not be terribly comfortable for me to hear. But if I don't listen up, you're not going to feel able to speak up. So I think it's that it's that both and. And I think if you are the recipient of somebody who's being giving you some painful feedback, just sort of remind each other that you are both there with positive intention. And I, I, I often have heard the phrase, you know, work hard not to offend, but work even harder not to take offence. And I think that's quite a, a powerful way to think about this when, when we reach some sort of impasse. Don Berwick tells a story about you know, the oops and ouch, where people from different parts of political divides, when you say this, it's a bit of an oops moment. I didn't mean didn't mean to offend you, or it might be a bit of an ouch, that, that didn't land terribly well with me. How might you reframe your language so that I don't take offence? And it's, it's that sort of thinking, I think, that we need to be really embracing. My, my, my personal experience in my roles in leadership is uh, that I suffer plenty of oops and ouch. Um, <laughs> but, but I think when you're in a position of leadership, very, very often you have whole days where people just want to tell you what a lousy job you're doing uh, and how you could be doing it better and how you've got it wrong and why are you doing it this way? So part of being a leader, my experience has been learning how to absorb all of that commentary that you get from people who haven't who haven't learned the skills to say it in a respectful, engaging, impactful manner, but to try and remove the emotion and listen to the content and not be defensive. And one of the skills that I've tried to dig really deep with because I'll be honest, it's a really hard piece of work. Some days are very, very difficult. And the, and the temptation is to snap back or to defend or to become offended, enraged, and to shut down the conversation and start to tell rather than ask. So 
what I tend to do is I tend to dig really, really deep. We know that as nurses, as doctors, as any healthcare professional, that we have those skills. So if if we had a patient in front of us that had cancer, it wouldn't cross our minds not to break that bad news to them. And we know and we expect that they are highly likely to have an exaggerated emotional response to us. They might get angry, they might get defensive, they might get upset. And whilst this emotion is pouring on top of us, it wouldn't cross our mind to meet it with the same level of emotional anger. So we have those skills to just listen and be empathic and be interested in that person and why they're responding this way to help them come through the emotion before they get to a position where they can become rational and engage in a rational discussion. And it is exactly the same. The other thing as a leader that I'm an absolute fan of is coaching. (laughs) And I think coaching should be the expectation rather than the exception. So I think coaching is key for all leaders so that when you've had an oops or an ouch moment, (laughs) you can reach out to your coach and say, do you know, I just got it a bit wrong today and I'm not entirely sure what was going on there. And the brilliant thing about the coach is they don't tell, they ask. So they're role modeling what you have to do every single moment of the day. So I would suggest that psychological supervision is also really, really helpful. I'm lead for learning from deaths and I have some very bruising conversations with consultant colleagues, with all sorts of doctors and nurses when the the standard of care has been less than we would have hoped for and they get very cross and angry with me. And of course, I have very difficult discussions with families when the standards of care has fallen below that they would have hoped for. So psychological supervision, so a touch base where I can get rid of all of that negative energy rather than carry it around with me is incredibly helpful. I get it. You'll push for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole, and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops top five episodes sorry and leap into your happiest thriving self again just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz yeah i love that idea jane that's when we're speaking up we need to see it as a breaking bad news situation it's actually what what we do when we speak up is we're so concerned about ourselves like what's the effect this is going to have on me am i going to get we don't think about actually how am I going to help this person receive it yeah. in in the best way possible? And uh, I know, Susan, you've got a load of really helpful models that might that might sort of help with that. You, you, I think there's loads of models around. You could, we could probably share about four or five yeah. between us. But, but what, what models have been particularly helpful? So one of the things that we've been working on with the Behavioural Insights Unit around, for example, classic is about people not complying with, you know, social distancing or, or wearing PPE appropriately. This is, was, was some, some real stuff that we tried out with folks. And, and basically, there's what I've called the H3, but basically head, heart and hand. So 
my head, the evidence is telling us that we know we need to keep our space or we know we need to, to, to use PPE appropriately. My heart, this matters to me because, and this is why it should also matter to you. So you're sort of giving them the sort of the compelling narrative at that point. And then the hand bit is so together, you know, we can create the required culture to take the necessary action. So it creates a sense of otherness and avoids the victim versus the villain scenario that often sort of um, creeps in. And so we're acting we're acting with integrity, doing it together. So there's this sense of we are all here to make the right decisions. We are all here with positive intent. And so that's one model I think is, is very simple to use. The other one, which is a little bit, takes a little bit more practice, is what we call the POIPS model. And you can use this sort of either in the moment if you're well used to using it. And we created some little credit cards for people to use, um, to have in their lanyards if they're wearing lanyards. But, you know, actually, POIP stands for permission. Is this a good time to have a conversation? And if not now, when would be? O is observed. You know, let's make it specific. This is what I spotted. This is what I noticed. The I is for impact. So what is the impact of your behavior on, on either yourself or others? And then pause, you know, ask them, so, okay, what do you think? What thoughts have you got on, on what I've just said? And then the, the S comes to solutions. So what, what suggestions have you got? What can we take forward? How might this work for us in practice? So, you know, thinking along the lines of hand space, space would be a classic example. When you got a little bit too close to me, I felt quite vulnerable. I, I've got somebody at home, home who I'm caring for. And, it, you know, it means a lot to me that you still will comply with with the sort of the, the guidance that we're all being asked to to live up to. So there's it, it sounds very similar to the advocacy inquiry sort of model that, that I find really, really useful, which means that when you're asking about an event or you're trying to understand something a little bit more, the advocacy is you're really trying desperately to understand the other person's perspective before you're allowed to make a decision or intervene with mm. with your <laughs> obviously better perspective <laughs> but, but it does so the advocacy well well you you said this I thought that and the impact with this was this can you can you explain that more to me so that I can understand it so that's the advocacy and the inquiry and, and then just put it back to them well, well what do you think about it now Mm-hmm. With, with permission for you to add a little bit in but I love that point so I've written it down taking it away so there are a lot of models there are a lot of ways to help us speak up but so far we've talked quite a lot about the individual and the individual as a leader or the individual as as a follower it'd be really nice now to broaden that out and think about how the workplace interacts with this because you can be as brave as you want as an individual and as amazing a leader as you want but if you are working in a system that is broken, that is toxic, or not even that, that's just overwhelmed and overworked. And let's face it, who, who's not working in a system right now that is, isn't a little bit overwhelmed and overworked? It's good to think about how we can actually make it easier to be a good leader and a good, a good follower in those, in those systems. And I'd like to talk a little bit about psychological safety, because I think this is sort of the the basis of everything, isn't it? And there's a fantastic book by Amy Edmondson called The Fearless Organization, where she talks about all the um, evidence behind psychological safety. And the thing that really sort of got me was this, the fact that she thought her research was wrong, didn't she, when she was first looking into it. She was looking at teams in hospitals and she found that the 
the team that was the highest performing, that had the best outcomes from patients, were the, was the team that reported the most incidents and, and failure. And she thought, well, what's going on here? Like, is there something wrong with my research? And she then looked into it and found that actually it was the team that reported the most incidents. It wasn't necessarily the team that had the most incidents, but what was happening was they were reporting it, they were learning from it. And, and then, of course, their performance w- went really high because I'm a big believer in actually failure is, is the best learning, isn't it? And the mistakes are the best learning. I heard them described as mistakes the other day, like almost mistakes you must make in order to learn. Now, that's really uncomfortable, particularly in healthcare, because we, it's really hard to learn from mistakes, particularly if somebody ha- has come to harm from, from those mistakes. So we'd rather learn from the small things that happen before they get to the, 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 the actual making you know, causing patients harm. So, I mean, Jane, I know that you you talk a lot about risk and and stuff. How, how does psychological safety interact with managing risk? And actually, what 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 can increase psychological safety in an organisation? So, I think it's really interesting. The first thing I'd like to touch on is is the fact that learning from errors um, is important. There's been this whole move, hasn't there, in the quality and safety thing that we have safety one and safety two, where we should also be learning from excellence. And you also mentioned, Rachel, didn't you, about the fact that it would be better to learn from the little things so that you catch it before you get to the big thing. And I wonder sometimes with the incident reporting that we have in hospitals is people, it has to be a really big, significant incident sometimes for people to report it. So they let the little things go by. And the terminology is that they're near misses. So I think we should turn that phrase on its head and call them a near hit rather than a near miss. (laughs) (laughs) because that's what it was you you didn't nearly miss it you did miss it but you nearly hit it so I think if we if everybody can start to think of these things as as near hits then they're going to be much more likely to report them the other thing with the instance uh, reporting system is the fact that often these things will be looked at and they'll be rag rated I'm not very keen on rag rating so red amber and green and the things that you think of You've taken a lot of effort to report an incident and then somebody who doesn't talk to you, who doesn't know about you, who doesn't know about the circumstances surrounding that near hit scores it as green and you feel that it's a tick box exercise and it gets washed under the carpet. So I think you're right. The work that Edmondson did, and it's been backed up by lots and lots of people, is that actually those those institutions that speak up have lower risk overall and better safety outcomes. So I think we should be looking at the little to learn. I saw something when I was on Twitter. I love Twitter. I saw something on Twitter and it said that what we should do is we should think about, instead of thinking about fail as something that's awful, we should think about it as your first attempt in learning. I like that. There was a vaccine, some vaccine developed, I think, you know, and it took hundreds and hundreds of attempts and someone said well, to the person what was it like to fail so many times he said oh I didn't fail I just learned I learned a hundred ways that you don't develop that vaccine exactly exactly and if somebody says no don't think it is a no but what it offers you is your next opportunity yeah like the light bulb, isn't it? You know, what was it? How many was it? Twenty thousand attempts, and 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 I think Dyson talks about he had over five thousand prototypes before he got the right um, 
vacuum. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, Jane, it, something in me when you say incident reporting has a really mm. negative reaction. I'm like, yeah, oh, absolutely. that's like snitching on people. And yeah. in my day, when I was on the wards, people would be like, I'm putting an incident form about that. And it was Aww. like, it was like, <laughs> this is my way of getting back at that person. It was not, yeah. no way was it like a learning thing. And it just felt yeah. really pejorative. Agree. And I think that's a problem that, that it's a significant problem that Datex or incident reporting, it has been weaponized. So people will use, use that as a verb. I'm going to Datex you, <laughs> which is, which is ridiculous, which is why, which is why we have this mentality of fear and anxiety around incident reporting rather than rather than a thought process that actually I didn't have the right number of staff today or this piece of equipment wasn't working properly today and actually if the management because we talk about the workplace and their their part in the whole of this it's so psychosocial safety climate if they don't know they can't do anything about it they haven't got a magic crystal ball that will tell them what's happening on the wards or in in your primary care practice they don't so unless we tell them this has happened over and over again and actually you might think goodness me this is the this is the sixth time i've i've put in an incident form about this particular piece of equipment but that will that will speak volumes to that manager. Gosh, this is six times this has happened in a week. Actually, I really do need to address this green incident form because actually it's giving it's giving them intelligence. So rather than thinking of it as a weapon or a perjurative sort of a, a penalty or a punishment, it's information and information is power. I think the other thing, so with, with learning from deaths, for example, what we have is we, we've been given a, a nationally recognized structured judgment review tool, and they've given us terminology that we have to use. So you can score care as excellent, good, adequate, poor, or very poor. Now, the moment you talk to clinicians or or healthcare practitioners and say that the care is adequate. You can see the shoulders raising. If you say that the care is poor or very poor, it sets up a, an instant defensive reaction, just the same as I'm going to Datex or incident report form you. So I think we need to work really hard, again, that, that breaking bad news analogy to, to sort of move away from thinking negatively about these words. The, 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 they're just words. The problem is our the story we make around that word. And once we've made a story around that word, then we have an emotional response to it. And the story is nearly always negative when things are described as adequate, poor, very poor, datex, instant form. So but recognise it. It's, it's a bit like the word resilience that we've all got a story around. Look, I can see you wincing already, but we've all got a story. I'm a resilience trainer and I hate that word. <laughs> but we've all got a story around the word yeah. resilience and that, that engenders an emotional response in us, doesn't it? But actually, it's just a word. It has a definition. Let's just recognise that. 
it's interesting, Jane, because you're obviously based in secondary care and you've got, you know, you've got this incident or this Daytech system. I'm interested in your experience in primary care, Susan, because I know you, you work the time for care team. And my experience as a GP as a primary care is that we hardly report anything because you've got these really small teams. Like, who do you even report it to? There's no system. If something really bad happens, you'll do a significant event audit. But, but that's about it. And so, Again, we have the too nice problem. Like, I can't speak because that's going to really ruin the team or whatever. So, Susan, have you seen any examples of really good practice where, where teams are able to, to feed back and speak up, you know, in, 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 a, in a primary care situation? Thanks for that lovely question. So, a few years ago, I did some work with the national safety team, which was looking at why is it that the vast majority of interventions take place in primary care, but less than 1% of reported incidents come from primary care. Is that because primary care is so good that they never make a mistake? Mm, no, don't think so. So I think there's a lot of stuff, isn't there? In the way things happen in primary care are typically behind closed doors, individuals on their own. So there's a little bit less of the check and challenge stuff that goes on. There's also, they haven't got that big governance team behind the scenes who are going to operate the data. So we did quite a lot of work to try and look at how can we make it easier for primary care staff to report include and I say primary care staff I'm not just talking about clinicians so people doing repeat meds for example you know people don't always know to your point Jane earlier they don't always know about what needs to be reported mm. um, and I think there's I love that bit about fail first attempt in learning I think I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that one <laughs> but if we don't learn from incidents I think also if we don't start to share what was the outcome of somebody taking the time to report an incident, then people don't actually see that loop of actually it's worth my while, something different is going to happen as a result. So I think we've got to actually sort of follow that whole, the old audit cycle, the way we would use, used to describe it years ago. So sharing with people, this is the outcome of your courage to speak up or your courage to log it's it's going to prevent harm for somebody else and i think the point that that you were referring to earlier jane about you know that psychological safety and the culture that we create well i think culture is a social construct and you know as an individual it's very hard to create the culture but if the role modeling is happening and that social movement about keeping people close to you, getting that spread, that first follower type movement that we, we often talk about. And um, we know from Michael, Michael West's work where we've got staff who feel valued, where they feel engaged, where they feel empowered, where they feel safe to speak up. There is a direct correlation with patient mortality. It isn't just the nice, nice sort of soft and fluffy stuff. This has now really got some real bottom line tangible outcomes now that we can see. And I don't know whether people have come across the work of Sean Aker. I mean, I think he's fab. He talks about that that brain, the positive brain or the neutral brain is 31% more effective than the brain when we're distressed, whether we've been working in, a, in that sort of toxic environment where we feel, oh, I can't really speak up or I'm feeling, feeling fearful. So we're, we're sort of starting off on the wrong foot to, to make wise decisions and choices if we're not in that sort of positive brain mindset. I think we need to recognise that actually at the moment we need to make reporting because it is for safety and that's why we want to do it and it will enhance our psychosocial safety climate because we will recognise act actions will, will occur when we've highlighted a safety issue. But it takes an awful lot of time 
to write these reports. And I think sometimes, so the first issue might be that we don't recognize that it's an issue that needs reporting because we might think it is insignificant. The second issue is it takes time. Let's be honest. If, if you're in primary care and you've spent all day in clinic doing calls, doing triage, seeing patients face to face, and then you've finished and then you've got to look up your, your results, and then you've finished and then you've got to write your referral letters and you've got to write your, your, all of your follow-up letters, and then suddenly you've got to write this incident report, you are much, much less likely to do that, especially if you're not going to get the feedback. There's nothing that's going to more quickly turn you off from filling that in. When we're thinking about work and our psychosocial safety climate, the things that play into that are workload. So incident reporting will increase our workload or what we perceive to be our workload. Uh, Maslach talks about control. So we we have no control over the outcome of that incident report. So actually involving us in the decision about what RAG rating it gets or involving us in the outcome is more likely to to be an effective solution. We think about reward. So the, the only reward you get is somebody sending it back saying, well, why did you bother talking about that? Whereas if somebody celebrated you you putting in your incident report, then you would feel rewarded if you sort of like could see the outcome and the improved patient safety. That would feel feel great, wouldn't it? And then talking about fairness and values, it you know if you put this incident form in, does it match your values, the response that you're getting, and what does that tell you about the place within which you're working, and and is it fair and proportionate? What what I'm reminded of is that shift from a compliance mindset to a commitment mindset. I'm doing this now because I can see that it's going to be taken seriously uh, as opposed to I'm going to do it because I need to tick a box. Uh, and so you're more likely to be committed to something that you have, as you say, I've been part of the decision-making about what's going to happen with this, how, how this gets escalated. And I think that really, again, it engenders that sense of I really want to make a difference I really, yeah. because I can see it's going to have, a, have some impact. And it plays into, doesn't it? So shared decision making, no decision about me without me. But actually, no decision about me without me plays absolutely into this, doesn't it? So, you know, when you're trying to sort of like talk about safety or or if, oh, God forbid, something horrible happens, you get a massive complaint, you have a death, you, you have a missed diagnosis, you get a claim, something something awful. How do you do you leave? Do you survive? Do you thrive? And actually, if there are decisions made about you without you, you are going to be on the survive or leave axis rather than the thrive axis, aren't you? So I think it's yeah. really important. Totally agree. And for, for me, Jane, that's all about trust. Yeah. And it just all boils down to trust because in order to have a workplace where, where it's okay to fail, I need to trust that A, if I mention something that I've done wrong and I want to learn from it, et cetera, that I, it's going to be okay, that I'm not going to be judged, that I'm not going to be, you know, the first thing you think when filling an incident form is, is this going to reflect really badly on me? Am I going to be in trouble? Yeah. Bottom line is, am I going to be into trouble with this? But if I knew that actually people would celebrate the fact I, I, I did it, they were pleased with me and it would really make a difference, I'm going to do it. And then on the flip side of that is with the, the speaking up piece is, do I trust that if I speak up, my relationship with that person is is going to be okay afterwards? I.e., do they do they have assumed positive intention from me? 
do they think I'm speaking up to them to be to be difficult or do they assume that I'm doing it because I really value the relationship I really value patient care etc cetera, etc cetera. and it, it it's when the trust is not there that that this becomes so so hard doesn't it I'm just wondering if you guys had some some real tips for both leaders and team members on on how to really build that trust within the teams, because that's that's what I think is often so so lacking. I think what what I'm struck by is that bit about every gesture, every action we take speaks volumes. So I think walking the talk, we're saying we want people to to speak up. Well, let's let's demonstrate that it is okay to speak up. So I think the trust will come from when people see that they're being taken seriously. So don't tell us that you want us to speak up and report and we're going to support you and then actually throw people in front of the bus when they do. So I think it's got to be action speaking louder than words for me. And I would say for me that the actions and behaviours that you walk past are the actions and behaviours you accept and the way that people talk and behave with you is the way that you will set your future. So if somebody has said something rude, if somebody is doing something wrong, if you say nothing, then they then they will continue to do that. So that's the standard that you've set for your continuing work life. And as difficult as it is to call the elephant out, sometimes it's better to do it. If you think about personal relationships at home, if you, you know, if you you've all got the friend that that is always taking the mickey that's always late or that's a bit rude or that treats you badly or that never pays at the restaurant or what have you uh, if you don't call that out they won't know so they'll continue to do it and the longer you leave it the harder it is to call it out so i'm a firm believer in um being brave and having courageous conversations and dying by the death by one blow rather than the death by a thousand blows for me. Mm. I, I love that. I've got a quote here that, that is from David Morrison, who's the, who was the chief of the Australian army when he was talking about, do you challenge or do you condone? And he does say the standard you walk past is the standard you accept, yep. which I think is absolutely right. You know, am I, am I prepared to speak power to truth here? Yeah. Is that okay? If this happens again, am I going to be all right with that? Or is that going to be something that's going to irritate the living daylights out of me or concern me deeply? And if it's going to irritate you or concern you, then you just have to work out, do I have the words? Do I have the skills? Do I have the courage? And then I'm just going to say this, my intention and my purpose is good. If they receive it badly, okay, but at least they know how I feel. I know we've got to finish in a moment, but I think there's something here about what are the consequences I'm prepared to accept if I do nothing, and am I willing to accept those consequences? I think that probably is is part of what we're talking about. Yeah, I heard a really good podcast recently. Actually, they were talking about relationships and how to get really deep relationships. And and often we leave stuff because we go, oh, it's not it's not worth it, it's not worth <laughs> it. They said, some um, change the word "it's not worth it" to either "I'm not worth it" or "you're not worth it." Or we're not worth it. Mm. Maybe in healthcare we could change it to patients aren't worth it. So if you're then going, patients aren't worth it. Oh well, hang on, that that's not what I believe. Right, I really mm. need to speak up. I, I think the other thing to say is, and I, I do teach this a lot, that if you give difficult feedback, and it's it's like we were alluding to before, Jamie, talk about breaking bad news. That person is very, re- 
they just probably will have a bit of a reaction because it's really difficult to hear oh. difficult feedback. But that that is okay. And we're so uncomfortable with people being uncomfortable and having negative reactions. Just being able to sit with it and being being okay. It's the difference between you know short term hurt and long term harm, isn't it? But we we I think that's why we avoid it. It's simply because we don't like that short term hurt that that it, that it might cause. But in the long term, it's it's really really important but it's getting you know and I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself here because I'm I'm really bad at giving you know having those conversations that I I know I need to have and you guys have really inspired me <laughs> to go and to go into it but it's, it's something I think we need we need to practice it right because it doesn't come naturally mm-hmm. if someone was really struggling with this in their workplace they found that there were things that were going un, unsaid that they felt they needed to challenge but just felt they couldn't where where would you su- suggest that people start with this I think there's, there's, as we mentioned, there's lots of frameworks out there. Mm-hmm. I think you know having a coach is really, really powerful. I think that really is great. Clinical supervision. There's having a conversation with somebody else, a mentor. You know, just talk to somebody. I'm reading a book currently, Radical Candor. Uh, I, I'm constantly learning, and we've shared between us today lots of evidence about where we can learn more. And I think let's continue to to build this sort of this culture of where we can learn from each other. I think there's also um, plenty of courses that are available. So I, I live and work in the east of England and I'm I'm running a masterclass next week on feedback and difficult conversations, although I think it's more important to call it an important conversation rather than a difficult mm. conversation. So mm. you set your mind set, up, set off right before you get started. I think coaching, I think if you're maybe a little bit more introverted and feeling less confident about talking to people. There are some fantastic books that you can read if you want to start things. So if you're on Twitter, I would absolutely recommend following Amy Edmondson. She's brilliant. If if you want to read a book, there's one called Vital Conversations. There's one called Fierce Conversations. There's one called Compassionate Conversations. They all talk about the same sort of thing. It's it's really breaking bad news on steroids. So there's plenty of reading material out there. And, and equally, if you're somebody who, who gains a lot when you're learning by talking to others, a mentor network is invaluable. A coach is fantastic or attending a course. And of course, if you attend a course, it's just it's just half a day. It's just a day. Unless you practice something, you won't get good at it. So every opportunity you get, practice these conversations. And, and then it becomes much easier to talk to your teenagers. It becomes much easier to talk to your in-laws. It becomes much easier to talk to your managers. It becomes much easier to talk to that colleague that is always a bit of a, a bull in a china shop that's, that's irritating the living daylights out of you. So it's a life skill. As we finish, can I just get your three top tips for anyone in this situation who's, who's sort of facing having to speak up? I, I think, gosh, the first thing I would say is think about why you want to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, be clear about what it is that you want to discuss and, and be honest about how the issue is affecting you. So I think that would be what I would you know, go in with. Brilliant. Thank you. Know your purpose. Know your intention. Be prepared to listen without defending. Thank you so much. Thank you, both of you. We could talk about this for another couple of hours. There's been, um, I'm going to definitely get both of you back on the podcast, if that's okay, another time. We'll put the ways that people can get in touch with you and websites and things like that in the show notes. But thank you so much for being with us today. Bye then. 
Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.